Chapter 25 of McClellan's Own Story by George Brinton McClellan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Manalakis. Chapter 25 Beginning of the Seven Days. McDowell coming, but not yet. McClellan resolves on flank movement to the James River. Preparations. Battle of Gaines Mill. The movement goes on. McClellan charges Stanton with intent to sacrifice the army. On the 26th, the day upon which I had decided as a time for our final advance, the enemy attacked our right in strong force and turned my attention to the protection of our communications and depots of supply. The event was a bitter confirmation of the military judgment which had been reiterated to my superiors from the inception and through the progress of the Peninsular Campaign. I notified the Secretary of War in the following dispatch. 12M. I have just heard that our advanced cavalry pickets on the left bank of Chickahominy are being driven in. It is probably Jackson's advanced guard. If this be true, you may not hear from me for some days, as my communications will probably be cut off. The case is perhaps a difficult one, but I shall resort to desperate measures and will do my best to outmaneuver, outwit, and outfight the enemy. Do not believe reports of disaster, and do not be discouraged if you learn that my communications are cut off, and even Yorktown in possession of the enemy. Hope for the best, and I will not deceive the hopes you formerly placed in me. On the same day I received the following dispatches from the Secretary of War. 6 p.m. Arrangements are being made as rapidly as possible to send you 5,000 men as fast as they can be brought from Manassas to Alexandria and embarked which can be done sooner than to wait for transportation at Fredericksburg. They will be followed by more if needed. McDowell, Banks, and Fremont's force will be consolidated as the Army of Virginia and will operate promptly in your aid by land. Nothing will be spared to sustain you, and I have undoubting faith in your success. Keep me advised fully of your condition. 12.20 p.m. Your telegram of 6.15 has just been received. The circumstances that have hitherto rendered it impossible for the government to send you any more reinforcements than has been done have been so distinctly stated to you by the President that it is needless for me to repeat them. Every effort has been made by the President and myself to strengthen you. King's Division has reached Falmouth. Shields Division and Ricketts Division are at Manassas. The President designs to send a part of that force to aid you as speedily as it can be done. The following was sent at 2.30 p.m. Your dispatch and that of the President received. Jackson is driving in my pickets, etc., on the other side of the Chickahominy. It is impossible to tell where reinforcements ought to go, as I am yet unable to predict result of approaching battle. It will probably be better that they should go to Fort Monroe, and thence according to state of affairs when they arrive. It is not probable that I can maintain telegraphic communication more than an hour or two longer. But 5,000 of the reinforcements spoken of in these communications came to the Army of the Potomac, and these reached us at Harrison's Bar after the seven days. In anticipation of a speedy advance on Richmond, to provide for the contingency of our communications with the depot at the White House being severed by the enemy, and at the same time to be prepared for a change of the base of operations to James River, if circumstances should render it advisable, 
I had made arrangements more than a week previous on the 18th to have transports with supplies of provisions and forage under a convoy of gunboats sent up James River. They reached Harrison's Landing in time to be available for the Army on its arrival at that point. Events soon proved this change of base to be, though most hazardous and difficult, the only prudent course. Early on the 25th, General Porter was instructed to send out reconnoitering parties towards Hanover Courthouse to discover the position and force of the enemy, and to destroy the bridges on the Tullumpotomy as far as possible. Up to the 26th of June, the operations against Richmond had been conducted along the roads leading to it from the east and northeast. The superiority of the James River route as a line of attack and supply is too obvious to need exposition. My own opinion on that subject had been early given. The dissipation of all hope of the cooperation by land of General McDowell's forces, deemed to be occupied in the defense of Washington, their inability to hold or defeat Jackson, disclosed an opportunity to the enemy and a new danger on my right, and to the long line of supplies from the White House to the Chickahominy, and forced an immediate change of base across the peninsula. To that end, from the evening of the 26th, every energy of the army was bent. Such a change of base in the presence of a powerful enemy is one of the most difficult undertakings in war, but I was confident in the valor and discipline of my brave army, and knew that it could be trusted equally to retreat or advance, and to fight the series of battles now inevitable, whether retreating from victories or marching through defeats. And, in short, I had no doubt whatever of its ability, even against superior numbers, to fight its way through to the James and get a position whence a successful advance upon Richmond would again be possible. Their superb conduct through the next seven days justified my faith. On the same day, 26th, General Van Vliet, Chief Quartermaster of the Army of the Potomac, by my orders telegraphed to Colonel Ingalls, Quartermaster at the White House, as follows. Run the cars to the last moment, and load them with provisions and ammunition. Load every wagon you have with subsistence, and send them the savages' station by way of Bottoms Bridge. If you are obliged to abandon White House, burn everything that you cannot get off. You must throw all our supplies up the James River as soon as possible, and accompany them yourself with all your force. It will be of vast importance to establish our depots on James River without delay if we abandon White House. I will keep you advised of every movement so long as the wires work. After that, you must exercise your own judgment. All these commands were obeyed. On the 26th, orders were sent to all the corps commanders on the right bank of the Chickahominy to be prepared to send as many troops as they could spare on the following day to the left bank of the river. General Franklin received instructions to hold General Slocum's division in readiness by daybreak of the 27th, and, if heavy firing should at that time be heard in the direction of General Porter, to move at once to his assistance without further orders. At noon on the 26th, the approach of the enemy, who had crossed above Meadow Bridge, was discovered by the advanced pickets at that point, and at 12.30 p.m. they were attacked and driven in. All the pickets were now called in, and the regiment and battery at Mechanicsville withdrawn. Meade's brigade was ordered up as reserve in rear of the line, and shortly after, Martindale's and Griffin's brigades of Morrell's division were moved forward and deployed on the right of McCall's division, towards Shady Grove Church, to cover that flank. Neither of these three brigades, however, were warmly engaged, though two of Griffin's regiments relieved a portion of Reynolds' line just at the close of the action. 
The position of our troops was a strong one, extending along the left bank of Beaverdam Creek, the left resting on the Chickahominy and the right in thick woods beyond the upper road from Mechanicsville to Cold Harbor. The lower, or river road, crossed the creek at Ellison's Mill. Seymour's brigade held the left of the line from the Chickahominy to beyond the mill, partly in woods and partly in clear ground, and Reynolds to the right, principally in the woods and covering the upper road. The artillery occupied positions commanding the roads and the open ground across the creek. Timber had been felled, rifle pits dug, and the position generally prepared with a care that greatly contributed to the success of the day. The passage of the creek was difficult along the whole front and impracticable for artillery, except by the two roads where the main efforts of the enemy were directed. At 3 p.m. he formed his line of battle, rapidly advanced his skirmishers, and soon attacked our whole line, making at the same time a determined attempt to force the passage of the upper road, which was successfully resisted by General Reynolds. After a severe struggle, he was forced to retire with very heavy loss. A rapid artillery fire with desultory skirmishing was maintained along the whole front, while the enemy massed his troops for another effort at the lower road about two hours later, which was likewise repulsed by General Seymour with heavy slaughter. The firing ceased and the enemy retired about 9 p.m., the action having lasted six hours, with entire success to our arms. But few, if any, of Jackson's troops were engaged on this day. The portion of the enemy encountered were chiefly from the troops on the right bank of the river, who crossed near Meadow Bridge and in Mechanicsville. The information in my possession soon after the close of this action convinced me that Jackson was really approaching in large force. The position on Beaverdam Creek, although so successfully defended, had its right flank too much in the air and was too far from the main army to make it available to retain it longer. I therefore determined to send the heavy guns at Hogan's and Gaines' houses over the Chickahominy during the night, with as many of the wagons of the Fifth Corps as possible and to withdraw the corps itself to a position stretching around the bridges, where its flanks would be reasonably secure, and it would be within supporting distance of the main army. General Porter carried out my orders to that effect. It was not advisable at that time, even had it been practicable, to withdraw the Fifth Corps to the right bank of the Chickahominy. Such a movement would have exposed the rear of the army, placed as between two fires, and enable Jackson's fresh troops to interrupt the movement to James River by crossing the Chickahominy in the vicinity of Jones Bridge before we could reach Malvern Hill with our trains. I determined then to resist Jackson with the 5th Corps, reinforced by all our disposable troops in the new position near the bridgeheads, in order to cover the withdrawal of the trains and heavy guns, and to give time for the arrangements to secure the adoption of the James River as our line of supplies in lieu of the Pomunkee. The greater part of the heavy guns and wagons having been removed to the right bank of the Chickahominy, the delicate operation of throwing the troops from Beaver Dam Creek was commenced shortly before daylight and successfully executed. Meade's and Griffin's brigades were the first to leave the ground. Seymour's brigade covered the rear with the horse batteries of Captains Robertson and Tinball, but the withdrawal was so skillful and gradual, and the repulse of the preceding day so complete, that although the enemy followed the retreat closely and some skirmishing occurred, he did not appear in front of the new line in force till about noon of the 27th, when we were prepared to receive him. About this time General Porter, believing that General Stoneman would be cut off from him, sent him orders to fall back on the White House and afterwards rejoin the army as best he could. On the morning of the 27th of June, during the withdrawal of his troops from Mechanicsville to the selected position already mentioned, General Porter telegraphed as follows. 
I hope to do without aid, though I request that Franklin or some other command be held ready to reinforce me. The enemy are so close that I expect to be hard-pressed in front. I hope to have a portion in position to cover the retreat. This is a delicate movement, but relying on the good qualities of the commanders of divisions and brigades, I expect to get back and hold the new line. This shows how closely Porter's retreat was followed. Notwithstanding all the efforts used during the entire night to remove the heavy guns and wagons, some of the siege guns were still in position at Gaines' house after sunrise, and were finally hauled off by hand. The new position of the Fifth Corps was about an arc of a circle, covering the approaches to the bridges which connected our right wing with the troops on the opposite side of the river. Morell's division held the left of the line in a strip of woods on the left bank of the Gaines Mill stream, resting its left flank on the descent to the Chickahominy, which was swept by our artillery on both sides of the river, and extending into open ground on the right towards New Cold Harbor. In this line, General Butterfield's brigade held the extreme left, General Martindale's joined his right, and General Griffin, still further to the right, joined the left of General Sykes' division, which, partly in the woods and partly in open ground, extended in rear of Cold Harbor. Each brigade had in reserve two of its own regiments. McCall's division, having been engaged on the day before, was formed in a second line in rear of the first. Meade's brigade on the left near the Chickahominy, Reynolds' brigade on the right covering the approaches from Cold Harbor and dispatch station to Sumner's Bridge, and Seymour's in reserve to the second line still further in rear. General P. St. G. Cook, with five companies of the 5th Regular Cavalry, two squadrons of the 1st Regular Cavalry, and three squadrons of the 1st Pennsylvania Cavalry, Lancers, were posted behind a hill in rear of the position and near the Chickahominy, to aid in watching the left flank and defending the slope to the river. The troops were all in position by noon, with the artillery on the commanding ground and in the intervals between the divisions and brigades. Besides the division batteries, there were Robertson's and Tinball's horse batteries from the artillery reserve, the latter posted on the right of Sykes' division, and the former on the extreme left of the line in the valley of the Chickahominy. Shortly after noon, the enemy was discovered approaching in force, and it soon became evident that the entire position was to be attacked. His skirmishers advanced rapidly, and soon the fire became heavy along our whole front. At 2 p.m., General Porter asked for reinforcements. Slocum's division of the 6th Corps was ordered to cross to the left bank of the river by Alexander's Bridge and proceed to his support. General Porter's first call for reinforcements through General Barnard did not reach me, nor his demand for more axes through the same officer. By 3 p.m. the engagement had become so severe and the enemy were so greatly superior in numbers that the entire second line and reserves had been moved forward to sustain the first line against repeated and desperate assaults along the whole front. At 3.30, Slocum's division reached the field and was immediately brought into action at the weak points of our line. On the left, the contest was for the strip of woods running almost at right angles to the Chickahominy, in front of Adams' house, or between that and Gaines' house. The enemy several times charged up to this wood, but were each time driven back with heavy loss. The regulars of Sykes' division on the right also repulsed several strong attacks but our own loss under the tremendous fire of such greatly superior numbers was very severe, and the troops, most of whom had been under arms more than two days, were rapidly becoming exhausted by the masses of fresh men constantly brought against them. 
When General Slocum's division arrived on the ground, it increased General Porter's force to some 35,000, who were probably contending against about 70,000 of the enemy. The line was severely pressed in several points, and as its being pierced at any one would have been fatal, it was unavoidable for General Porter, who was required to hold his position until night, to divide Slocum's division, and send parts of it, even single regiments, to the points most threatened. About 5 p.m., General Porter, having reported his position as critical, French's and Mars brigades of Richardson's division, 3rd Corps, were ordered to cross to his support. The enemy attacked again in great force at 6 p.m., but failed to break our lines, though our loss was very heavy. About 7 p.m., they threw fresh troops against General Porter with still greater fury, and finally gained the woods held by our left. This reverse, aided by the confusion that followed an unsuccessful charge by five companies of the 5th Cavalry, and followed, as it was, by more determined assaults on the remainder of our lines, now outflanked, caused a general retreat from our position to the hill in rear overlooking the bridge. French's and Mars' brigades now appeared, driving before them the stragglers who were thronging towards the bridge. These brigades advanced boldly to the front, and by their example, as well as by the steadiness of their bearing, reanimated our own troops and warned the enemy that reinforcements had arrived. It was now dusk. The enemy already repulsed several times with terrible slaughter, and hearing the shouts of the fresh troops, failed to follow up their advantage. This gave an opportunity to rally our men behind the brigades of Generals French and Marr, and they again advanced up the hill ready to repulse another attack. During the night, our thin and exhausted regiments were all withdrawn in safety and by the following morning all had reached the other side of the stream. The regular infantry formed the rear guard, and about six o'clock on the morning of the 28th crossed the river, destroying the bridge behind them. Although we were finally forced from our first line after the enemy had been repeatedly driven back, yet the objects sought for had been obtained. The enemy was held at bay. Our siege guns and material were saved, and the right wing had now joined the main body of the army. The number of guns captured by the enemy at this battle was 22, three of which were lost by being run off the bridge during the final withdrawal. Great credit is due for the efficiency and bravery with which this important arm of the service, the artillery, was fought, and it was not until the last successful charge of the enemy that the cannoneers were driven from their pieces or struck down and the guns captured. Dietrichs, Cowarkhems, and Grimm's batteries took the position during the engagement in the front of General Smith's line on the right bank of the stream, and with a battery of siege guns served by the 1st Connecticut Artillery, helped to drive back the enemy in front of General Porter. So threatening were the movements of the enemy on both banks of the Chickahominy that it was impossible to decide until the afternoon where the real attack would be made. Large forces of infantry were seen during the day near the old tavern on Franklin's right, and threatening demonstrations were frequently made along the entire line on this side of the river, which rendered it necessary to hold a considerable force in position to meet them. On the 26th, a circular had been sent to the corps commanders on the right bank of the river, asking them how many of their troops could be spared to reinforce General Porter after retaining sufficient to hold their positions for 24 hours. General Heinzelman replied, I think I can hold the entrenchments with four brigades for 24 hours. That would leave two brigades disposable for service on the other side of the river, but the men are so tired and worn out that I fear they would not be in a condition to fight after making a march of any distance. 
Telegrams from General Heitzelman on the 25th and 26th had indicated that the enemy was in large force in front of Generals Hooker and Kearney, and on the Charles City Road, Longstreet, Hill, and Hooger. And General Heitzelman expressed the opinion on the night of the 25th that he could not hold his advance position without reinforcements. General Keyes telegraphed, As to how many men will be able to hold this position for 24 hours, I must answer. All I have, if the enemy is as strong as ever in front it having at all times appeared to me that our forces on this flank are small enough. On the morning of the 27th, the following dispatch was sent to General Sumner. General Smith just reports that six or eight regiments have moved down to the woods in front of General Sumner. At 11 o'clock a.m., General Sumner telegraphed, The enemy threatens an attack on my right near Smith. At 12.30 p.m., he telegraphed, Sharp shelling on both sides. At 2.45 p.m., Sharp musketry firing in front of Burns. We are replying with artillery and infantry. The man on the lookout reports some troops drawn up in line of battle about opposite my right and Smith's left. The number cannot be made out. In accordance with orders given on the night of the 26th, General Slocum's division commenced crossing the river to support General Porter soon after daybreak on the morning of the 27th. But as the firing in front of General Porter ceased, the movement was suspended. At 2 p.m., General Porter called for reinforcements. I ordered them at once, and at 3.25 p.m. sent him the following. Slocum is now crossing Alexander's Bridge with his whole command. Enemy has commenced an infantry attack on Smith's left. I have ordered down Sumner's and Heitzelman's reserves, and you can count on the whole of Slocum's. Go on as you have begun. During the day, the following dispatches were received which will show the condition of affairs on the right bank of the Chickahominy. General Franklin telegraphed, General Smith thinks the enemy are massing heavy columns in the clearings to the right of James Garnett's house and on the other side of the river opposite it. Three regiments are reported to be moving from Sumner's to Smith's front. The arrangements are very good made by Smith. Afterwards, he telegraphed, The enemy has begun an attack on Smith's left with infantry. I know no details. Afterwards, the following. The enemy has opened on Smith a battery of three pieces to the right of the White House. Our shells are bursting well, and Smith thinks Sumner will soon have a crossfire upon them that will silence them. Afterwards, at 5.50 p.m., the following was sent to General Keyes. Please send one brigade of Couch's division to these headquarters without a moment's delay. A staff officer will be here to direct the brigade where to go. Subsequently, the following was sent to Generals Sumner and Franklin. Is there any sign of the enemy being in force in your front? Can you spare any more force to be sent to General Porter? Answer at once. At 5.15 p.m. the following was received from General Franklin. I do not think it prudent to take any more troops from here at present. General Sumner replied, If the general desires to trust the defense of my position to my front line alone, I can send French with three regiments and Mar with his brigade to the right. Everything is so uncertain that I think it would be hazardous to do it. These two brigades were sent to reinforce General Porter, as has been observed. At 5.25 p.m., I sent the following to General Franklin. Porter is hard-pressed. It is not a question of prudence, but of possibilities. Can you possibly maintain your position until dark with two brigades? I have ordered eight regiments of Sumners to support Porter, one brigade of couches to this place. Heinzelman's reserve to go in rear of Sumner. If possible, send a brigade to support Porter. It should follow the regiments ordered from Sumner. 
At 7.35 p.m., the following was sent to General Sumner. If it is possible, send another brigade to reinforce General Smith. It is said three heavy columns of infantry are moving on him. From the foregoing dispatches, it will be seen that all disposable troops were sent from the right bank of the river to reinforce General Porter, and that the Corps commanders were left with smaller forces to hold their positions than they deemed adequate. To have done more, even though Porter's reserve had been prevented, would have had the still more disastrous result of imperiling the whole movement across the peninsula. The operations of this day proved the numerical superiority of the enemy, and made it evident that while he had a large army on the left bank of the Chickahominy, which had already turned our right and was in position to intercept communications with our depot at the White House, he was also in large force between our enemy and Richmond. I therefore effected a junction of our forces. This might probably have been executed on either side of the Chickahominy, and if the concentration had been effected on the left bank, it is possible we might, with our entire force, have defeated the enemy there. But at that time they held the roads leading to the White House, so that it would have been impossible to have sent forward supply trains in advance of the army in that direction, and the guarding of those trains would have seriously embarrassed our operations in the battle we would have been compelled to fight, if concentrated on that bank of the river. Moreover, we would at once have been following by the enemy's forces upon the Richmond side of the river operating upon our rear, and if, in the chances of war, we had been ourselves defeated in the effort, we would have been forced to fall back to the White House, and probably to Fort Monroe, and as both our flanks and rear would then have been entirely exposed, our entire supply train, if not the greater part of the army itself, might have been lost. The movements of the enemy showed that they expected this and as they themselves acknowledged, they were prepared to cut off our retreat in that direction. I therefore concentrated all our forces on the right bank of the river. During the night of the 26th and morning of the 27th, all our wagons, heavy guns, etc. were gathered there. It may be asked why, after the concentration of our forces on the right bank of the Chickahominy, with a large part of the enemy drawn away from Richmond upon the opposite side, I did not, instead of striking for James River, 15 miles below that place, at once march directly on Richmond. It will be remembered that at this juncture the enemy was on our rear, and there was every reason to believe that he would sever our communications with the supply depot at the White House. We had on hand but a limited amount of rations, and if we had advanced directly on Richmond, it would have required considerable time to carry the strong works around that place during which our men would have been destitute of food, and even if Richmond had fallen before our arms, the enemy could have still occupied our supply communications between that place and the gunboats, and turned the disaster into victory. If, on the other hand, the enemy had concentrated all his forces at Richmond during the progress of our attack, and we had been defeated, we must in all probability have lost our trains before reaching the flotilla. The battles which continued day after day in the progress of our flank movement to the James, with the exception of the one at Gaines Mill, were successes to our arms, and the closing engagement at Malvern Hill was the most decisive of all. On the evening of the 27th of June, I assembled the corps commanders at my headquarters and informed them of the plan, its reasons, and my choice of route and method of execution. General Keyes was directed to move his corps, with its artillery and baggage, across the White Oak Swamp Bridge, and to seize strong positions on the opposite side of the swamp, to cover the passage of the other troops and trains. This order was executed on the 28th by noon. 
Before daybreak on the 28th, I went to Savage's Station and remained there during the day and night, directing the withdrawal of the trains and supplies of the army. Orders were given to the different commanders to load their wagons with ammunition and provisions and the necessary baggage of the officers and men, and to destroy all property which could not be transported with the army. Orders were also given to leave with those of the sick and wounded who could not be transported a proper complement of surgeons and attendants with a bountiful supply of rations and medical stores. The large herd of 2,500 beef cattle was, by the chief commissary, Colonel Clark, transferred to the James River without loss. On the morning of the 28th, while General Franklin was withdrawing his command from Golding's Farm, the enemy opened upon General Smith's division from Garnett's Hill, from the valley above, and from Gaines Hill on the opposite side of the Chickahominy, and shortly afterwards two Georgia regiments attempted to carry the works about to be evacuated, but this attack was repulsed by the 23rd New York and the 49th Pennsylvania Volunteers on picket and a section of Mott's Battery. Porter's Corps was moved across White Oak Swamp during the day and night and took up positions covering the roads leading from Richmond towards White Oak Swamp and Long Bridge. McCall's division was ordered on the night of the 28th to move across the swamp and take a proper position to assist in covering the remaining troops and trains. During the same night, the Corps of Sumner and Heitzelman and the Division of Smith were ordered to an interior line, the left resting on Key's old entrenchments and curving to the right so as to cover Savage's station. General Slocum's division of Franklin's Corps was ordered to Savage's station in reserve. They were ordered to hold this position until dark of the 29th in order to cover the withdrawal of the trains and then to fall back across the swamp and unite with the remainder of the army. On the 28th, I sent the following to the Secretary of War. Headquarters, Army of the Potomac, Savage's Station, June 28, 1862, 12.20 a.m. Honorable E.M. Stanton, Secretary of War. I now know the full history of the day. On this side of the river, the right bank, we repulsed several strong attacks. On the left bank, our men did all that men could do, all that soldiers could accomplish. But they were overwhelmed by vastly superior numbers, even after I brought my last reserves into action. The loss on both sides is terrible. I believe it will prove to be the most desperate battle of the war. The sad remnants of my men behave as men. Those battalions who fought most bravely and suffered most are still in the best order. My regulars were superb, and I count upon what are left to turn another battle in company with their gallant comrades of the volunteers. Had I 20,000 or even 10,000 fresh troops to use tomorrow, I could take Richmond. But I have not a man in reserve, and shall be glad to cover my retreat and save the materiel and personnel of the army. If we have lost the day, we have preserved our honor, and no one need blush for the Army of the Potomac. I have lost this battle because my force was too small. I again repeat that I am not responsible for this, and I say it with the earnestness of a general who feels in his heart the loss of every brave man who has been needlessly sacrificed today. I still hope to retrieve our fortunes, but to do this the government must view the matter in the same earnest light that I do. You must send me very large reinforcements, and send them at once. I shall draw back to this side of the Chickahominy, and think I can withdraw all our materiel. Please understand that in this battle we have lost nothing but men, and those the best we have. In addition to what I have already said, I only wish to say to the President 
that I think he is wrong in regarding me as ungenerous when I said that my force was too weak. I merely intimated a truth which today has been too plainly proved. If at this instant I could dispose of ten thousand fresh men, I could gain the victory tomorrow. I know that a few thousand more men would have changed this battle from a defeat to a victory. As it is, the government must not and cannot hold me responsible for the result. I feel too earnestly tonight. I have seen too many dead and wounded comrades to feel otherwise than that the government has not sustained this army. If you do not do so now, the game is lost. If I save this army now, I tell you plainly that I owe no thanks to you or to any other persons in Washington. You have done your best to sacrifice this army. G. B. McClellan End of chapter 25